it's much better for us to invest in things that can give us compounding 10% wins. In other words, it gives us a win today and we work on things that can compound rather than them being sort of one-off features. We, we have like a good shot of doing something that will succeed. We should be cognizant of where the technology is and only build things that we know will provide value today. And if we continue doing that, we will be the fastest moving in the space. Welcome to Engineering Founders, the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. In this episode, Varun Mohan, co-founder and CEO at Codium, joins us to discuss determining the right problem and product to pursue. We also talk about his best frameworks for decision-making, determining if it's time to pivot, and ultimately testing your hypotheses. Varun also covers the three main types of risks that founders face and strategies to compete on execution risk. Plus, Varun shares tips for building your product with the future in mind, even if the technology capabilities aren't there yet. Let me introduce you to Varun and Codium. After graduating from MIT and working at companies like LinkedIn and Databricks, Varun became a tech lead manager at Neuro, leading AI infrastructure, before co-founding ExaFunction to run large AI workloads. And after hitting seven-figure ARR in the first year, Varun and team decided to drop everything and run their own AI platform with Codium, first tackling the acceleration of software development. Codium is the modern coding superpower. They provide a code acceleration toolkit built on cutting-edge AI technology with features like AI-powered autocomplete, intelligent search, and AI-powered chat to help you build and ship products faster. Enjoy our conversation with Varun Mohan. First off, just want to say welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. How are you doing today? Today is Wednesday. What's going on, man? Yeah, I guess uh, today's a busy week. We're having a lot of calls with companies in, in Europe, uh, different time zones. So this is not the first call of the day, but glad to just hopefully just have a relaxed conversation. Absolutely. Well, we will definitely keep it cool, keep it casual, but keep it smart and keep it business action. So we talked about some of the themes around building something that people actually want. And this other element that I've been really fascinated by that you brought up, which is building your moat with speed of execution being a, a key part of that. And I think these are really, really interesting and powerful combinations. Before we dive into that specifically, we'd love to start off with the origin story of Codium and how you transition from the world of software engineering and software engineering leadership to starting your own company. Uh, so bring us into that origin story. What happened there? It starts around over five years ago. I joined a company called Nero. Uh, it's an autonomous vehicle company in Mountain View. I was there when the company had less than 15 engineers, so it was on the, on the smaller side. For most companies, that's not that small, but I was there at the time. And the company ended up growing over the next couple of years to an engineering team that was hundreds of people. I became a more senior manager at the company at that point and managed a team of, let's say, around 15 to 20 people to build out tooling and infrastructure for the entire autonomy team. So obviously, there's a big chunk of people that are working on building the actual self-driving technology. And just like anything, there then needs to be a team of people that make sure that these people are as effective as possible and have all the tools necessary to iterate really, really quickly. At that point, the company had grown a lot bigger, and I felt my calling was working at a much smaller environment. So I ended up starting a company called ExaFunction, actually with a good friend of mine. I've known him since middle school, actually. But then we later also worked together on a lot of stuff together at MIT. But we've always were in touch, basically, and started a company called ExaFunction. Uh, before that, he was at Oculus working on AR, VR. So both of us were working on tech that was maybe a little bit out there. Uh, but that was, that's what truly excited us. 
And ExaFunction basically focused on GPU virtualization technology, right? So it focused on building technology to make GPU workloads significantly more efficient. And basically what we were able to do was with a very small team of people, we were able to get the product out to a handful of companies with very large deep learning workloads and manage upwards of 10,000 GPUs in the public cloud. So we were able to take their workloads that ran on, on many GPUs, run it on fewer GPUs, uh, which was really, really valuable for them because GPUs at the time were not only very expensive, which they still are, they were also scarce. There was weird supply chain issues at the time. I guess what happened was last year was, I guess, a big moment for us because we realized that actually a lot of the companies that were coming to us when we were a pure infrastructure company were generative AI companies. And what we felt was that generative AI was like the early days of the internet. If we just provided them infrastructure, that wasn't going to truly solve their pain because the applications were extremely nascent. It's kind of like when I go back to 2000 and I look at the most valuable companies, they weren't the web server technology companies. I don't really know what the web server technology companies were. The companies with the craziest web server technologies were Google and Amazon, right? It just so happened to be a case the workloads were so novel, they ended up building the craziest technology for themselves. So we realized that actually it was a good time to go out and actually take our technology and build an entire application that we were passionate about. And at the time, that was Copilot. Copilot was a product that GitHub had and it's taken the industry by storm. And we started out with the ambitious vision of, Let's build what Copilot has today with the future vision of we're going to generate entire PRs of code, but offer the product entirely for free. And that's sort of where we started. A lot of the transitions that we talk about with folks here are, you know, going out and starting one company and having one direction. But what's interesting here is Exafunction, its impact in infrastructure, and then the identification of a different opportunity in a different path. Like, tell us about more like, I guess, like more mechanically, the relationship between the two, and then what it's kind of like leading both of those elements. Maybe one very honest thing is I believe that as a startup, you have to chase the largest opportunity you can possibly chase at any given point. There are no awards for, I think, doing a thing that doesn't end up materializing, even if you're working very hard. I believe we have very, very strong engineers at the company, but we will fail if we work on something that doesn't have as high a market potential. So actually, the moment we started working honestly on Codium, we stopped putting in a lot of effort into ExaFunction. And we started winding that down, actually, because one of the advantages that a startup has over a big company is focus. Like big companies are fairly good at trying a lot of things and maybe like not putting in a lot of effort into each one. So as a startup, we decided that the focus of the company was actually the product podium. Wow. Tell us about like that moment of gaining the conviction to change focus and wind down something that was having a big impact at the time. Tell us more about like making that decision and then marshalling everybody behind that new vision. There, there are two questions in this. So like, how do you decide what to work on next? Slash also, why not even just keep moving forward with what you're working on right now? I guess one very interesting thing started to happen. We saw the writing on the wall in a lot of aspects. A lot of the companies that started coming to us that previously were asking, hey, like, can you serve this exotic model architecture? We're asking us for the same thing. Can you serve a transformer model, right? They were asking us, can you serve a particular model used for generative AI workloads? So we could tell that the future of deep learning workloads was going to be generative AI. But that actually affected the original thesis of optimizing deep learning technologies because what ended up happening was if all generative AI workloads were transformer models, in some sense that homogenizes what types of workloads that end up getting run in the long term. And then also on top of that, the specific ML engineers that were reaching out to use ExaFunction originally, some of their work that happened would no longer happen anymore. Concretely, 
let's say a person was training a specific sentiment analysis model, which is a common thing to sort of end up doing, that would end up getting subsumed by people just applying generative models to ask, what is the sentiment of this? So the specialization that happened was going to unravel. So our end user that we were targeting, we believed wasn't going to be nearly as impactful as what was going to happen in the future. We saw the market of what was potentially going to happen. And we believed deep learning was going to get large. It was just going to commoditize to generative AI workloads, which meant that we believed that most of the value would accrue to the application layer. So it was kind of like we're just like some rational steps along the way. And this was hard to admit to ourselves because we were making like material seven figures in revenue with a fairly small team of people. We were like eight people at the time and we were doing that. So a lot of instinct was to just accept that, hey, maybe there's more to, maybe we should just continue as is. But I think psychological safety doesn't pay off at a startup. It is like not a great thing to just not be paranoid. Uh, I think at a startup, like you don't get an award for that. And I think for the other thing is what product do you end up working on next if you are going to work on something that's like maybe an, yeah, an important problem. I think it needs to be something that everyone at the company is fairly passionate about. That was actually a really important part of the thesis. One of the things that we saw was a successful generative AI application, and we're very close with the team there, is Midjourney. Midjourney is a very, very, I mean, you've prob- you might have used Midjourney. I've used it a couple of times also. It's a great product. The only thing is like that doesn't really resonate with me or the team. Like in the, if I were to go the last five months, I have not done text to image even once over the last five months. Mm-hmm. That isn't a product that really resonates with me. So having a team of people work on that is not a product that I think we would be advantaged in. And we're not passionate enough in to drive it to completion. However, all of us were early adopters of a product like Copilot. So that made the, made the decision of what to work on next a lot simpler in some sense. And then also the reason why I believed we were advantaged here was the infrastructure we had built actually enabled us to ship this product like way faster, right? We went from middle of last year having nothing to shipping a product last year to starting with a thousand users this year and scaling the infrastructure up to hundreds of thousands of users now. So it's kind of an interesting thing where I believe we were strategic in picking sort of what we wanted to work on next. And clearly, maybe the the final piece there was, if I was to say the next thing we were working on, we wanted to pick something where we knew that there was an incredible market risk. In other words, there are lots of fields that we don't understand that well, and we could apply generative AI or something to that field, but we would not have a specific insight about how it would work. And also if the market had an appetite for it, but we knew that we liked Copilot. So that was probably enough for us basically. So we were our own products users at that point. From a tactical perspective, because the insights that you're synthesizing here, you know, seem so clear in, in hindsight. Was there a process or a method that you use to track some of the different, these different things converging or these different insights that became really clear in terms of reduced market risk, identifying the problem, assessing like the areas of passion and energy and effort from the team? Like, what was your process like to track or to synthesize those insights to really develop like the rationale to move forward? So I think for maybe maybe this is like an interesting thing about startups in general, irrationally optimistic at a startup, because the point is, if you're pessimistic and you have a small team, you're not going to accomplish anything. So that's like a recipe for disaster, right? So the inertia shouldn't be quit doing what you're doing instantly. But you have to be uncompromisingly realistic, which is a thing which is also hard. It's hard to keep both of these things in your head at the same time. So I think in a, in a sense, founders, folks that are early at a company can feel when things aren't working the way they should be working. And 
generally speaking, people people make a decision to flip the switch later rather than earlier. And I will say the the thing is, we hired folks that we knew well in the past already. So for us, the notion of telling them and being honest with them and saying, hey, things could be going growing faster. And this is why we're picking something which we think we have large market potential, and we are a unique team to succeed. Even though that sounds like a scary proposition to do at a large company, imagine tomorrow, everyone is like, you told a large company, hey, like everyone at the company, you guys got to work on something different. That would feel very, very scary for folks at the company. It's like, hey, what's going on? Or what's going on with the direction of the company? It's a lot easier when you're a small company. So for us, we actually reveled in the fact that a startup, one of the benefits is being able to make decisions really quickly. And in my mind, a lot of it is gut instinct on why you decide to do one thing versus another. Because in a lot of cases, you just will not have complete data, right? There's no data of like, what could our true distribution potential be if every company knew what we were? I I don't want to use delude yourself, but you can always continue to say, hey, like, maybe if we figure out marketing, more people will know that our product exists. There's so many unknowns at at a startup that the answer is never just, oh, this data clearly indicates that you should do this. And you can get a bunch of data points, but ultimately your gut feeling should say it because at a startup, everyone is working so hard. You know when you're pushing rather than there being some amount of pull, right? Absolutely. Going back to a different element that you mentioned, like with the advantages being built with the infrastructure from what you're doing with ExaFunction, helping you ship way faster, would you have made the pivot independent of the infrastructure advantage that had existed? Or did you look at like current capabilities of what you had built independent of market or independent of like the type of product that you're building? And then think about where are our highest leverage points? Like what was like what was the assessment like looking at your current advantages in making the pivot decision? Yeah, I think one of the valuable things that a startup to be able to do is fail fast and face reality as quickly as possible. And you never face reality if you don't ship a product. That's the truth. Look at the number of companies that have raised incredible rounds uh, of capital that have yet to ship products maybe a year or two after raising an incredible round. The crazy thing is these people have not tested a single hypothesis internally. And I've, I've worked at a company like, you know, in the autonomous vehicle space where testing a hypothesis is really hard to do. So that is awesome if you can test a hypothesis quickly, right? That is like a blessing for a company if you can. If that is something that you can actually do and we can set ourselves up in a position to build a product like that, that's great. And it happened to be the case that for generative AI applications, our infrastructure was already massively helpful for us to ship a product really, really quickly. And that's sort of maybe where it started from. It's been really cool to hear like the synthesis of some of the insights, like with the different companies like coming in asking you, like, hey, we need this, and using that as a way to get sort of this sense of where the need is moving in the future. One of the the dilemmas I think is really interesting and like the traps that people fall into is to your validating hypothesis point, like how do you know if you're actually building something that people actually want or you're actually solving a problem? I was wondering if you talk a little bit more about like your perspective there, why that's so important, and then maybe some of the strategies or the tactics that you found or the different approaches that helped you really identify people actually want this, this actually solves people's problem. Yeah, this is going to sound pretty basic, but a company has maybe like three kinds of risks, right? You have market risk. Does anyone want this product? There's execution risk. Can you actually build the product even if people want it? Sometimes the answer is no, right? Uh, The weird thing is AV would be execution risk. Autonomous vehicles would be execution risk. If people told you you never need to drive a car, I think everyone would be like, sign me up, right? As long as it wasn't prohibitively expensive, people would be like, everyone would be like, I want it. So there's no point in asking the question of, I don't know if people want this technology, right? There's, there, it's not a very interesting question then. And then finally, there's like distribution risk, right? For things like software, maybe other kinds of technology, 
physical goods distribution risk is also real. And then for software, if there are other incumbents, distribution risk is also real. You know, so the lower probability of success, right? Everything I'm saying is is fairly obvious here. And I think you have to be cognizant about which kinds of risks you're open to taking as a team. If you take on something with massive market risk, massive execution risk, and massive distribution risk, or even ignore distribution risk, what you should be looking to do at that point, if there's massive market risk, is to build the hackiest MVP and see if anyone wants it. And you should be prepared to be able to toss that away instantly, which is a weird thing to do. At a larger company, you're not going to go and just build something super quickly and just toss it away and rinse and repeat over and over again. To go from that large company way of developing software to then doing that at a startup, it's like getting slapped in the face over and over again, right? It probably would be like, hey, I built this. The market is like, and you also need to be careful about how you ask the market. Because if you ask your friends, would you buy this? They're going to be nice. They're going to be like, yes, you build it. They're going to be like, oh, I'll ask my company. And then the reality is no one's going to really buy the technology, right? So there's all these things about sort of if you do have market risk, you do need to figure out as quickly a way as possible to de-risk that. And that might mean don't build the entire product at that point. Build some form of the product that you consider good enough that if people said no to that, that probably means the idea is bad. So I think for us, when we made the decision to work on Codium, we knew that at least if we had built something, there wouldn't be real market risk. We would be our own users. Like we could honestly say we would be our own users. So we knew that. Obviously, there was a crazy thing of, could we distribute it to everyone? Would everyone in the world decide to use it despite the fact that Copilot exists? So the bearer burden on us was, can we build a product materially better and give them better incentives to use the product? And then on top of that, in terms of execution risk, that was one of those things where as a team, I believed we were the kind of team that could go out and train models. We were the kind of team that could also go out and serve generative AI infrastructure as efficiently as possible. So we were actually in a right place on the execution side. And we believed that the time to execution wasn't going to be order years, it was going to be order months, which is why we actually ended up shipping the product so quickly afterwards. I love the idea of assessing execution risk. Like I'm, I'm jotting down a bunch of different notes here because I think the questions that you're, you're asking here, I think are super powerful. Related to execution risk, can you talk to us a little bit more about how the speed of execution has helped set the company up for success and how that has been sort of like a strategic approach for you all there? One of the things with a, with a startup that's kind of interesting or any new idea that's kind of interesting is you can go out with a business plan, but the business plan is kind of, it's this interesting roadmap. Like you could have a vision, right? For us, the vision is generative PR, but you need to be really flexible with the details of how you actually get there, right? You need to actually like be willing to take the path that optimizes for your success. And what that means is you have a next step. You hope that you know the next three steps, but the reality is you could get new information entirely that means that the next step is completely different. For us, we ended up building this product. We thought that a lot of folks would want to use the product. And we were just like, okay, let's try to get the product out to as many people as possible, which was an accurate statement. Like, hey, a lot of people ended up using the product. We started out with a thousand users and now we're at hundreds of thousands of users using the product. We're one of the world's largest generative AI apps in terms of tokens process. We generate close to a billion lines of code for all of our users daily, right? So we're doing a lot of damage right now. But our thought process was somehow we'd figure out a way to monetize on these subset of users. But the reality was immediately after building the product, people that use the product and were at companies wanted to run the product internally. And there were a series of sort of operations we could do to make the product much better for enterprises while still enabling us to keep the product entirely free and high quality for all the people that were using the product. So we went in with an assumption of, hey, we would get these individuals to pay us if we could build enough good features. Hey, we want to put as many good features 
features as possible into this individual offering and figure out ways to monetize on great Teams products and Teams products that are not just like we slap seat management on it, but differentiated sort of Teams products. So that sounds very obvious, but at the time we started from just, can we build something people want and use? And our hope was if we could generate value for a lot of people, we would figure out a way to extract value. That shouldn't be our number one priority. Very few companies even figure out how to generate any value to anyone, right? If you look at companies that take on massive sort of execution risk and have a crazy product to build, while they're building this crazy product, they've delivered no value to anyone. And the longer they, they take in delivering the product out, the more likely when they do deliver the product, if there was also some market risk, no one would use the product regardless. For us, that's sort of the, the thought process there. It's kind of like this route where you don't know what the next step is going to be. But as long as you make locally optimal moves that you believe set yourself up to a great future, that's like the best you can possibly imagine. Because you're not going to have, like you don't have a lot of the facilities as a large company has, right? You don't have insane distribution on day one, which is a positive, by the way. That's also a positive. Larger companies can potentially convince other companies to buy a product that is not very useful. So you can't end up copying those tactics, right? Just because they have a different sales motion, they can bundle it with a lot of other stuff. At a startup, you need to be like pragmatic and okay with uncertainty in a lot of uh, dimensions. Absolutely. I love this perspective of like, if you deeply focus on delivering value, like actually truly delivering value for people, then you can figure out how to then extract value in terms of like, you know, the, the revenue generated from that particular product. I want to get, get into that differentiation moment, because you know, we, we've talked to some folks that like their strategy has been open source first, and then building sort of different business elements on or products on top of that, like that are charged for, it almost seems like there's a little bit of like echoes of that strategy, but it's not quite the same. And so I was wondering, you can talk about like that differentiation moment when you were identifying like the things that people were asking you for, or, like, how did you start to determine the, the split, or what was going to be focused on like as a paid product versus something that was going to remain free for users? So our product is an AI code assistant technology. Codium provides autocomplete chat, natural language-based search capabilities. We have a lot more interesting features in the pipeline. But one of the things that we did was the product is actually not open source. The key core aspect of the product is not open source, but we've open sourced particular IDE integrations. So for instance, our Vim, NeoVim, and Emacs extensions are entirely open source. The way we parse code, and which is used for our natural language search product, is entirely open source. So we realized that people within the community would know best how to integrate technologies into their own tools. So let's say I'm not the biggest Emacs user. People that are power Emacs users should be able to make contributions to how the tool integrates with Emacs, right? So the, the parts that touch Emacs are, are actually things that are open source. But the underlying service itself that runs remotely isn't something that we open source. And that's because we don't think open sourcing that component makes the product materially better for our users. And it also allows us to have a much faster release cycle than if it were not open source. That's sort of the thought process we have. So we don't have this thing of, hey, there's an open source product that we want all of our end users to run themselves, right? And then at the same time, we want to figure out a strategy to make them pay for that product that they already needed to figure out how to run themselves, right? Which is actually, I would say, an issue with a lot of these open source projects, which is the product is something that people can clone and use themselves. Like, what is your reasoning to get them to pay? It's not good enough to just say, you know, SaaS magic, like it runs remotely. Like, is that a really compelling value proposition? Because then you need to think about what is the total cost of ownership for the underlying business to just do it themselves, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, right? 
there's actually two aspects to a business. You not only need to generate value, you need to figure out how to capture value, which is maybe the dirty part of a business because you'd hope you only need to generate value. But yeah, if the reality is you build something so easy to use that everyone could run it themselves and it generates a ton of value, that actually doesn't mean you earn the right to capture any of the value. So a little bit of a, a tangent over there. But when we, when we had the product and the product was growing, we had a lot of companies asking us for a couple of very specific things. I have a large team. My company doesn't let me ship code outside, right? And we were in a good position because we're not an API wrapper. We don't just wrap OpenAI. We actually train our own models custom made for our application. So these companies were asking us, can we actually self-host this? And not only can we self-host this, can we tune the product and personalize it to all the private code that we have? Because we have tens of millions of lines of private code that has never seen the light of day. From this perspective, it was very clear that our free product didn't solve that problem for them. And that was clearly a tool that only people wanted if they were working at large companies. This was a way for us to discriminate between these two segments because we needed to build a little bit of a separate offering for them. Not in that it was using a different infrastructure, but it was solving a different business need for them. So that was a very clear moment for us. And then similarly, there were companies that said, we are okay shipping our code, but we want this product to be aware of a very large code base. And that motivated us in terms of what should we be building if we wanted a product that was cloud managed by us, but a product that people would pay for. It was very straightforward in that, you know, it's, it's kind of similar to what GitHub did originally, uh, which is that, hey, if you, if you write open source code and we want to be really kind to people that write open source software and give them as much flexibility as possible, if you write open source code and the code is public, you have all the facilities of GitHub for you for free. But if the moment you had a private repository or you're a company that's operating privately with a bunch of teams, yeah, like you do need to pay for the product. And we're not going to charge you an arm and a leg for it. That's not the goal. But the point is we want to make the product easy to use for for individual developers, that's not where we're trying to make our money. I was like, I, I knew you were going to have some really interesting like nuances in terms of like how to think about kind of the open source differentiation. And so I, I appreciate kind of the deep dive there. Not a tangent at all, exactly the type of insight I was hoping to identify there. I want to go back to this idea of an execution moat. What does the execution moat look like at a company like Codium? Or kind of the broader question being like, how do you build an execution moat? Like, what do you have to optimize for to do that? I think the idea of an execution moat in general is it's a little bit of a, of a weird statement. And it's a weird statement for two reasons. First of all, for a startup, the idea of an execution mode is it it's, can only be speed, right? Because the reality is the sheer number of engineering years that have gone into the product can't be very high definitionally, right? This is not a TSMC level product where that many sort of engineering years has gone into it, where hundreds of thousands of people sort of have been contributing to something for tens of years, right? The crazy thing is TSMC, despite that, is only a year or two ahead of its competition. So that goes to show that even if you do have like a lot of years put into something, that doesn't mean you, you're guaranteed to win for the rest of time. And it's the same is true for Apple. If Apple doesn't continue to innovate on the iPhone for two or three years, Android is going to look very formidable. They're not going to sit down and, and lay down, right? They're just going to continue to innovate. So one of the nice things about the space we've picked is the number of years that the product segment has existed, period, is not very high. So that means the number of engineering years that have gone into competitors' products cannot be high definitionally as well. So that's actually another interesting thing about the sort of space that we've targeted right now. But the idea of an execution mode, I would argue, is, okay, we say that speed of execution is, is very important. Speed of execution for a startup in particular is really important. Because I would argue one of the things that a startup is able to do is focus, work on one thing very hard, and continue and be able to pivot directions very, very quickly. One of the things that I think a big company is able to do really well is work on a lot of different work streams in parallel and make steady progress on each one, right? 
that's maybe the big advantage. So for a startup, for you to truly win, you have to be willing to move, change directions really quickly, pick projects that are extremely high ROI to work on, and focus on them heavily. And then the question becomes, how do you sort of pick projects that are high ROI? And I think the way we sort of think about that is, let's say our goal is to generate, uh, I don't know, like PRs, right? Our goal is to generate PRs, and we want to build the best product that enterprises can use internally and individual developers can use on any piece of software that they want to end up writing. In my mind, what we need to do at that point is we need to capture user intent, right? If we want to generate an entire PR, we need to be capturing user intent, which means we need to be using a variety of data sources, right? Within a, I'm just giving you a particular way that I would think about this. And in an IDE, a user does a lot of things, right? They write code in the IDE, they might use chat, they might write stuff into the terminal, so in my mind, probably what we need to do is we need to figure out ways to provide value in the terminal at some point, right? And the reason why is that is where the user executes code. That's where they debug code. And the benefit of also adding some functionality and providing value in the terminal in the longer term would be we can even execute code for them in the background and use that context of executing code to generate even more code. So you can imagine, hey, like in the background, execute a unit test, the unit test fails, use that context to then retune the code that we thought we should have generated, re-execute it, and then finally we can generate an entire function. So this gets closer and closer to like an autonomous developer, right? So then that would be a thing that would be worthwhile to invest in because it enables us and unlocks us to do something else in the future. Versus like, let's say, optimizing heavily on one thing that gives us a 1% win across 10% of developers. It's much better for us to invest in things that can give us compounding 10% wins. In other words, it gives us a win today, but then also by doing the work and putting in the time, it sets us up in a position to get another win down the line. And that's sort of the way we sort of think about it, where if we work very hard and we work on things that can compound, rather than them being sort of one-off features, we, we have like a good shot of doing something that will succeed. And I'll give you maybe an anti-example of something that I've seen. And I, I do believe that, you know, the team at GitHub is doing good work. They came out with a feature that was like, summarize a PR, right? And we tried the feature out instantly. It was like cool in the beginning, but not very useful very quickly. And the reason is because summarizing a PR A is not something that's super valuable, I would say in general, because it only takes a couple minutes for someone to write a PR summary. And then on top of that, it was inaccurate, right? Because actually understanding code is not a very straightforward thing to do, even if you have a very powerful model. So then people just started to ignore it. And these are the kinds of things that we can't afford to invest time in if the technology isn't there yet. And this comes back to, we should be cognizant of where the technology is and only build things that build capabilities that we know will provide value today. Because we can't afford to be like, oh, three years from now, the technology will be there. Because we might as well at that point build something that provides value today and set ourselves up in a position that three years from now, when the technology gets there, we have even more functionality. That's sort of the way we, we think about iteration. And if we continue doing that, we will be the fastest moving in the space, basically. Compounding and capabilities. I have a lot of follow-up questions here, Varun. I want to dive in a little bit deeper to how to identify what will compound when you're going through this assessment process, because I think that is such a profound insight for a young company and thinking about the early developments of new products. And the impact of that is so elegant in terms of building this exponential improvement in what you're building. Can you tell us more about like the process of identifying what will compound? Like, do you have other examples like of what was going on at Codium to identify this compounding element of your product? Like, tell us more about this. I think part of it is uh, at least like, you know, one of the benefits we have is a lot of us at the company have worked at hard technology companies in the past, like AV, ARVR, maybe other deep learning sort of companies. And these spaces, by and large, the final end goal that you're trying to get to is 
it's not there yet. The technology is maybe not there yet, or the number of steps required to get there is really far out. So that gives you a perspective, at least for us as a company of like, is a particular feature worth investing in? I think we've thought about this from different angles for different products in the past. And maybe that's like a unique position that we've been in given the, the sort of history of a lot of the employees of the company. Because to be honest, an AV system fails for a variety of reasons, right? It could fail for small pedestrians. It could fail for crosswalks. It could fail for unprotected lefts, right? And one of the things that I've seen, at least like if I was to go to the autonomous vehicle space, it is much better to build something general that is able to detect small things on, on a road and deal with that rather than building something specific for small children on roads and then small traffic cones and then small potholes and then build singular systems each time. Because the problem is if you end up doing that, you get a combinatorial explosion for your development model. Right. But then a generic solution, while it might take a little bit more effort to build, will help you in the long term because the tail end of issues is going to be large. And it might feel good in the very beginning to solve the small child problem. But the moment tomorrow it comes out that you need to solve traffic cones, it's going to be annoying. And we've we've gone through this dance in the past of iteration cycles that look like this. So I think for us right now, it's I wouldn't say it's it's easy. I think it's the same for everyone, but we're very cognizant on a per feature or per functionality basis. Does it set ourselves up for a better situation longer term down the line? And if the answer is we're going to implement something very hacky, could we spend some more time to implement something that genuinely would benefit us down the line? And that's maybe a key thing. Don't over-engineer a system just because it's like, oh, wow, we have smart people, let's over-engineer. Because that's, I think, what the desire is for smart engineers in a company. But engineer something so that you don't end up shooting yourself in the foot a week later. And when we take that perspective, it becomes a little bit more obvious, you know, how to pick the next set of things to build. I've kind of one more, one more question, then we've got some rapid fire questions to get into, Varun. This one is kind of like the broader question of like investing time and investing capabilities. Because I think when I was when I was looking at Codium, like the thing that I was blown away by in terms of like the speed of execution is the amount of languages and editing platforms that like you have brought like coverage for. And so like the broad question is like investing in time, investing in capabilities, like how do you decide where to invest in building? And has that changed kind of in early days to now in terms of like how you assess where to make those investments? So the support for every IDE was a thing that we decided really early on. We decided actually quite early that it would be hard if we needed to replicate the functionality of every IDE. And different IDEs don't use the same language. For instance, for Visual Studio, we need to end up not writing JavaScript. We end up writing Objective-C, right? But on the other hand, for Vim, we end up writing VimScript or Lua. Like we cannot implement the same piece of functionality in, in every single one of these. So because of that, very early, we implemented a shared component or binary that handles a lot of the client-side computations. And that was actually shared across all the IDEs. And basically then the IDE deals with interfacing with each of these binaries. So that's just an example of what you said, where early on, we just decided we need to support developers where they are because developers aren't going to change their IDEs. Developers are very, very sort of passionate about where they write software. So that made us make that decision. And I think for us, we always try to project a little bit forward of if we implement this, where can we see this giving us value and providing our users value down the line? And if the answer is we can credibly say that it would provide value, that's awesome. And we do try to talk to our users about this because I think one of the things that I think is hard about a startup is you start believing that the next product that you build is always going to be valuable. You start genuinely believing that. 
And you do need to be very skeptical that if I build something new, would any of my existing users actually use it? Because the answer is a lot of the time, if it's something completely separate or you haven't really validated it, most of the time the answer is no. So there's a lot going on here from the perspective of you have to validate that what you're going to build next is going to be useful. But then if you can validate that and at the same time, you can validate that the system you, you have can extend to that, you're setting yourself in a, up in a good position there. I love it. I, I got to sneak in one more one more question related to this. So this goes into the, the topic of when the technology isn't there yet, how do you set yourself up to get to that point when the technology does get there? And you've shared some really great examples from both your experience, like within the autonomous vehicle space, but then also in like the long term focus on generating PRs for people, like how to think about layering up to that. So when you think about like, how do you set yourself up to get to the point where the technology gets there, you can really maximize that. You are in the space where technology, the technology is, is evolving so fast. What's your final perspective there on setting yourself up for success for that technology that is, that is emerging and hasn't quite maybe got to the final stage yet? Yeah. So I think one of the things to look at is like GPT-4 is like a very, very good model. Like no one is going to argue it's not. It's, it's maybe like not the most knowledgeable about certain things that companies might do internally, but it's very, very smart. But even that model gets like 200 on code forces. Code forces is a programming competition, which puts it in like the bottom like 5%, maybe like or the bottom 1%. So we just need to be cognizant of that. If the model has that algorithmic capability today, and that coupled with the fact that it doesn't know all developers intents, this model is just not capable of generating a PR. It doesn't matter how much you try. It's just not going to be there. But I'm a technological optimist. I think it's only going to keep getting better. So in the future, these capabilities are only going to increase and increase. So the way I get around that is we need to be providing as much value as possible for the technology that exists today. Because our users don't care if we tell them, hey, five years from now, you're going to get something crazy. They're going to be like, okay, talk to me in five years. And they would have forgotten us by then. So we need to do that. But at the same time, we can't be implementing things today, assuming that stuff is not going to get better. I think that's, you know, that's the that's the common theme here. And the point is, if we can implement interfaces that as technology gets better, it actually up levels capabilities for ourselves internally. That's that's like the best thing we can possibly do. So that's sort of the way we think about it. We don't want to be in a position where we tell our users there's no value we can give them today. But at the same time, we don't want to be in a position to tell our users this is all the value you're ever going to get today. I love it. I love it. Brun, we've got some rapid fire questions. Are you ready to jump in? Yep. Okay. What are you reading or listening to right now? I guess one of the books that I read recently was was Chip Wars that talks a little bit about sort of how these early days of making some of these silicon chips sort of look like, which was kind of exciting. It reminds me a little bit about how the hard tech situation kind of looks like, how much if there's a large prize also, lots of people are going to jump in. So there, that was kind of an interesting book to read. That makes sense. When you dropped the TSMC example, I was like, oh, this is some this is a deep hard tech strategy knowledge. This is awesome. Okay. Founder resources that have been most helpful. One of the things, I mean, Paul Graham's the man. Some of his essays, I just haven't gotten the time to read. But if, if he writes anything, I, I will read it. It feels like this guy has seen everything. So just go and read it. I think one of the big things that those essays make you do is a lot of people start a company with the sense of, wow, I'm doing something grand. But once you start from the perspective of I have nothing, and my only goal is to build something, it level sets your expectations. And his essays, I think, personify that. That's great insight. Next question. How do you diffuse stress? I think I think startups without stress, I, I think are, if you have no stress at all, either you're building something no one wants, and you don't know that. But the only way to I think diffuse stress is continue to ship, get more information, because usually you're stressed out because you don't have enough information. And you just got to de risk that as quickly as possible. 
I feel like you just identified like my greatest source of stress and anxiety, and I didn't know it. That's great insight. Last question, Varun. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? Paul Graham must have said this. Maybe uh, building people's want. That's, that's it. I don't know. That, that just always resonates with me because the moment you kind of forget that, you're kind of toast at that point. I think an apropos summary of a lot of the, a lot of the, the subjects that we got into with our conversation today. So I think that's a, a powerful way to close off. Varun, just want to say thank you so much for diving in just to the breadth of your experience and the way that you think about different things. I mean, I learned so much about just the strategy and sequencing of building different products and addressing like emerging markets and technology. So this was a ton of fun. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders. Make sure that you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify. And if you want to connect with other engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own companies or who've already made the leap, we're building an engineering founders community. We'll be hosting a ton of virtual meetups, sharing resources, and lots of other fun things to support your founder journey. So if you're looking for support, sign up for updates at elc.community. That's elc.comunity. And we'll see you next time.